Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Marty Plum, and I am your host of a pen and a napkin podcast, the weekly coaching clinic that you can carry around with you in your pocket. Welcome to episode number 122, and this is a privilege, it is a pleasure, this is something I've wanted to do for a while. Uh, America has, you know, Dr. James Naismith back in 1891 took a couple peach baskets and hung them up on a balcony, but uh, basketball truly has become a world game, and I have wanted to talk to somebody from overseas for quite a while, and this morning we have the opportunity to do that with Vincent McCauley, who is the owner of the London Lions of the British Basketball League and former head coach of the Lions, multiple stretches of being a head coach for the Lions. And I am just really, really excited to get a non-American look at what we call the beautiful game. Now, Coach McCauley might say uh, that that football thing might be a little bit of the beautiful game, but here in America, we're going to call basketball the beautiful game here for this morning. And because of this beautiful game, we have this common bond with one another this morning. So uh, before we get to Coach McCauley, of course, we want to thank our founding sponsor, COSAC Chiropractic, located at 144th and Maple here in Omaha. If you have any spinal uh, balance neck or spinal issues, go see COSAC Chiropractic. You can give Dr. Kevin or Dr. Heidi a call at 402-964-0300. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at a pen and a napkin. We try to put out daily coaching tidbits on the Twitter handle, so be sure to follow us there. Obviously, if you're listening, you're on iTunes, so download, rate, and review this podcast. Give us five stars so that we can get the word out to gain momentum in the ratings so we can help as many coaches as we can to hone their craft. And if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. Coach McCauley, it is match day in London. You're a London guy cheering for Manchester, I'm sorry, Liverpool. They're playing Manchester City today. This is going to be a nice, relaxing thing. It's going to take your mind off the match for a little while here before you put on your face paint and and you, you, you start getting going here. How are you doing today, Coach? Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, terrific, terrific to be on the show. And you're quite right. It's a big day over here. Try to calm down before kickoff. <laughs> so <clears throat> for our non football fans, and I'm going to not use the S word to describe okay. England's game. Uh, for non-football fans, describe if you can make a professional, American professional football comparison, uh, what is today like uh, with a Liverpool versus Manchester City matchup here in the regular season of the Premier League? Wow. Well, okay. First of all, it's going to be very tough for me to make that matchup because my days of, of, of NFL, when you say professional football, I'm assuming you meant NFL. I you bet. Be wrong yep. here, but yeah, so my days were in the days of, um, you know, the Washington Redskins and, and, and Wiggins and all the Riggins and all those guys. Oh, so okay. I'm not up to date, even though I did see the Super Bowl this year. But let me put it this way. In the last four football seasons... If you add the points of Manchester City and you add the points of Liverpool, there is only one point difference between them over the last four years. Wow. That is incredible. That is that is yes. incredible. Yeah. So for so uh, three uh, three points for a win, one point for a draw, and a big goose egg for a loss. And so over four That's seasons, right. 
that's that's a pretty big deal. So, uh, we, yeah, we, absolutely. We we talked a we we talked a little uh, football before we started taping here today. So, uh, coach isn't gonna. He promised not to pick on me. He just felt sorry for my allegiance <laughs> to to my club there in the Premier League. Uh, but we're gonna move on from there. So, coach, I'm. Uh, uh, I don't know whether to co- call you coach or governor. I'm gonna call you coach for the duration of the the podcast here. Uh, Coach McCauley, uh, the the owner of the London Lions of the British Basketball well, the, League, the, the former owner. I think we should clear that up. The former owner, oh, as yes. of the sixteenth of January, twenty twenty two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I did see that on Twitter that that you that you uh, stepped away. Uh, but we're going to dive in. You've had a you've had a long and distinguished career in Britain uh, with the game. Uh, just for the folks that don't know a lot about you, just just tell us about your basketball journey and and and. Uh, you know, where did you start at? Uh, just tell us about your, your distinguished journey there uh, with the game of basketball. Okay, thank you. No, I'm happy to share that with people. Um, for me, basketball came to me late. You know, I was uh, 17 years old. Uh, I was in the equivalent of high school, I guess, in, in Liverpool. Um, and I had never played basketball before. Uh, I was trying to get out of my, my class. And all of a sudden, my team, my, my classmates said, oh, no, come back into class. You've got to help us out here. I'm like, what is it? It's after school. We've got to get home. And uh, he said, look, we've got a basketball game. We need five guys to start the game. We've only got four. And I said, but I've never played. <laughs> so they said, look, we'll show you. So they stood me under the basket. I was, as I am, six foot five. They said, put the ball on the glass, get it to the square, and we'll be good. I said, oh, all right, then. So I ended up playing the game with them. And uh, throughout the game, there was this guy walking around the court, uh, which I noticed, a distinctive guy. But anyway, we played okay in the game. We did well. We won the game with our five guys. And uh, this guy approached me afterwards and said, hey, young fella, I haven't seen you around in a while. You know, where do you play? I said, listen, I want to recently come through from Africa after my, my mom came back. And uh, this is my first game of basketball. He said, no. I said, yeah, it is. So this gentleman was a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Rogers. Uh, Jimmy Rogers is a late, great uh, coach here in England who passed away a few years back. But he had a team in Liverpool and he got me playing down there. Um, I relocated to London a couple of years later uh, to carry on my studies at the London International Film School. Uh, and then Jimmy showed up in London and said, hey, I'm in London. I want to set up a basketball club. Let's go together and set up a basketball club. So we set up what was then the Brixton Topcats Basketball Club right in the center of, uh, of London. And um, because I was in the kind of filming side of things, trying to learn the game around that, um, we were able to get some sponsorship from um, Nike. And they just happened to be launching Air Jordan because it was Michael Jordan's first year as a pro. Okay. And they said, listen, tell you what, we'll send Michael Jordan down to help you launch the club. <laughs> Can you believe it? Oh, wow. Like, well, who, who is this guy? Well, you know, he's an up-and-coming guy. You know? <laughs> sure enough, you know, we had a, we had a, a clinic for about 800 kids. Michael, Michael Jordan showed up. I did an interview with him. It's live on YouTube for anybody who's interested. And, you know, he helped us launch the club. And that's how I started playing, you know, seriously mm-hmm. uh, with Jimmy. We were competitive. We were very good. Um, and as, as things would have it, you know, my, my, my filming career got going. So I, I had to stop playing as much basketball. But I stayed involved, um, moving to another club locally. If I'd taken over the ownership of that club, which then eventually became the London Towers Basketball Club, a very, very strong powerhouse in British basketball back in the in the 90s and, and so on. Uh, but then, you know, it became a powerhouse because there was uh, investment from a media firm who took it on, and I left to join another club, 
which was uh, a team that eventually became the Milton Keynes and the London Lions, which is what it is now, and won my first trophy, uh, I want to say, in 2007, Coach of the Year 2008, and uh, continued to be successful right through our move to London in the Olympic year 2012 into a lovely 7,000-seater facility, the Copper Box Arena, mm-hmm. um, and uh, won the league championship, etc. And then a couple of years ago, you know, got involved with a team uh, group from Miami who wanted to really take British basketball onto the European scene uh, in, in, in competition in Europe. Um, obviously, the COVID year was tough for everybody. We, we, you know, we, we only were able to play one game before COVID shut it down. But this year, we had a good start, done very well. I, I, you know, I'd take the team to a 5 and one record in the first round, got through to the second round, undefeated at home. Um, and then the grouping, I think, wanted to go in a different direction. So come early this January, we party company. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I can just concentrate on my own individual things now rather than be responsible for the actions of the club. Well, it sounds like you've earned the privilege to not have to uh, to help everybody else uh, out there. So, uh, you know, you, you've, you've mentioned the growth, uh, the growth uh, a little bit of, of your journey. Uh, tell us a little bit uh, about the, the British Basketball League. Uh, its growth, uh, just some of the unique things about the league, uh, the schedule, you know, how does it work? The scheduling, the structure, uh, whether, you know, here in America, um, if you're a basketball fan of any type, you're familiar with how high school basketball works in America. You're familiar with how college basketball works, uh, the NBA, uh, that type of thing. Uh, tell us about the growth of the British Basketball League. Sounds like it really came together kind of in the late 80s, and it's kind That's of right. grown steadily and surely. Uh, just tell us about your league and, and how it functions and, and how it works, and, and just, just give us a, a synopsis of the league. Yes, you're quite right. The early 80s is about the time that things picked up because it started to try to become professional. I mean, we had a lot of amateur clubs up and down the country, um, but then uh, the owners of the top clubs said that we need to get together, organize ourselves, make, some, make ourselves a little bit more professional. So we started having, uh, you know, bringing in players in from abroad uh, and things started improving. In fact, when we got into the, I think, late 90s and so on, we started getting regular television coverage. You know, bear in mind for your listeners out there, you know, this is a, a sport that, you know, doesn't own any facilities. It, 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 you know, it was just trying to grow this sport. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we already talked about the Premier League. Then you think about it's British sports like cricket and yep. rugby and yep. all this other stuff who are always, you know, ahead of us in the queue for financial support. So, you know, people had to go and rent a local leisure centre, dress it up, play the games, that kind of stuff, um, which was difficult at times. And then we had a kind of boom period, if you like, in the early 2000s when we had a lot of rich owners who were able to invest in hiring arenas to play the games. But in as much as this was a success, it was also a failure because obviously you're paying so much money to hire an arena. You don't take any secondary spend. Um, All your money is only in ticket income, sponsorship income, that kind of stuff. So it was going to become unsustainable, which sure enough, it did. But actually what we've now done is uh, we've come through to a wave of owners who understand about sustainability, who understand, who actually earn their living from the game. So I think that was a big change in, in the history of British yeah. basketball because it wasn't a case of I'm a rich record producer and I, I want to support basketball. It was, I am a basketball promoter. I have to make money to survive. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think a lot of people have come through that section. And now we have a few clubs who've gone on to build their own facilities. Newcastle is up in the north. Leicester is in the Midlands, Sheffield etc. They're building their own facilities already. Some of them have built those facilities. Now, obviously, having put the London Lions in London, um, land in London is similar 
to land in New York, you know, trying to find land to build an arena <laughs> is going to be very, very difficult. Yeah. But it, took, it was on the agenda, and it's something I'm sure will, will happen in the future, because obviously that's the way forward. Um, you don't want people coming to a city not knowing where the basketball team is. You know, you, yeah. you just come to say, where do they play? They play over there. And that's actually <laughs> a big thing, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the kind of, uh, shall I say, structural development of the game. The basketball development of the game, you know, now uh, my old team, Hemel, Hemel Royals, that became the Lions, we had a player come over um, very, very early 90s. I'm just going to uh, show my age now by not remembering his name. Um, he was the uh, center for Indiana who won the uh, NCAA finals in 84 on the Keith Smart shot. Uh, oh, um, yeah, uh, yeah, that guy. I know who you're yeah. talking about because he was a Juco. Dean Garrett? Uh, no, 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 it wasn't Dean Garrett. Uh, oh, my goodness. I'm uh, going, going, going. Okay, this... it'll come to me in a, in a second as we talk. But yep. he came over here to play. He uh, he was the MVP of our league, etc. You know, so we started attracting good players over from uh, from the, uh, the States to play. Alton Bird, you know, best player in the U.S. under six foot. This kind of guys, Alan Cunningham. Now, what then happened is as we started getting these better players, a huge step went back with the growth of basketball across Europe because all of a sudden, communication opened up between American coaches and European coaches. Mm -hmm. The internet was slowly coming along. So all of a sudden... You know, if you graduated from college in the States and you weren't going to make the NBA, what did you do? You know, you, you might, oh, I know somebody in England, they have a club, why did you go and play there? Because it's English, it was easy. Yep. But now, teams were blowing up in Bulgaria, in Hungary, yep. in Serbia. Especially and, after know, the so fall access. of communism. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So now, they were investing over there, you know, where, you know, in, in, the, far, uh, in, the, in the Far East there, people are investing in the army basketball teams, you know, your Barcelona's in the football relationship, your Turkish teams, your Greek teams, paying a lot of money to players, as we know, you know, mm -hmm. currently Mike James playing in Europe. So, so actually, where we had a strength in our links with America and so on, us, we lost that because of our level of basketball. Mm -hmm. So now, mm -hmm. instead of getting, you know, Mr. Kansas basketball, like Larry Dassey to come and play, Nick Nurse to come and play, Mr. Iowa basketball, we were losing those guys. So we had to now find another way of, of attracting those players and increasing um, the level of our game. So slowly we started to do that once more and then we come back through to a second boom where now, you know, this year on our team, we had Marcus Teague who, who played with Kentucky. We had mm -hmm. Julian Washburn from Memphis Grizzlies. Last year we had DeAndre Liggins who played with LeBron. Yep. Yep. So attracting good players. We got the MVP of our league currently is uh, Gino Crandell who was at Gonzaga, who's won the league over here. So now we've got back to a place where, with an eye to the sustainability and the ease of transition from coming from the USA to, to UK, basketball, language, food, all of that yep. stuff, we are now a good place to come to for, for US uh, players who aren't going to make the NBA necessarily. Yeah. What's, uh, what's the structure of the league in the sense of when does your league start? Uh, when does it end? Uh, how many games are, are in your season? How often do you play? You know, what's your, because, uh, yeah, just, just, just stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. How many practices do you have typically between games, that type of stuff? Yeah, we have a pretty uh, arduous season. So typically we tip off in September um, and we don't play our final playoff game till um, mid to end of May. 
Oh, so okay. that's a very, very long period. So now if you say that a team like the London Lions who played in Europe, so this year we actually started pre-season on the 1st of August. Oh, wow. So basically the guys have been together from the 1st of August and will carry on probably to something like the 15th or the 18th of May. Mm -hmm. So that's quite long. We play, there's currently 10 teams in the league mm -hmm. and we play each other three, uh, three times. Um, so 27 games in the league, but we also have subsidiary competitions. Uh, you know, like in in, in, in football. <laughs> said yes, oh, you said it before I did. You said it before I did. I win. I win. You, win. <laughs> you know, we have knockout competitions. You know, uh -huh. so we have a cup competition. Uh, we also have a trophy competition. So whilst you're playing your know, 27, 28 games in the league, you've also got up potential. You know, 10, 12 games in a different competition. So mm -hmm. we have four. Um, competitions that you can win mm -hmm. uh, but the pride of place goes to the league because it's the, the toughest to win over yep. the entire season yep. so even though we're kind of caught between a, a, a chair and a stool really or whatever you say because you know in the NBA we all understand that it's about the playoffs mm -hmm. uh, but you know because you have seven game series and all this kind of stuff you kind of understand how that comes through we don't <clears throat> again because of facility restrictions we can't play a seven game series so mm -hmm. we don't do that so our playoffs become a two-legged affair, mm -hmm. and then our final is played at our biggest venue in London, the O2 Arena, yep. in front of about 20,000 fans. Um, so whilst that's prestigious and huge and looks great, it's actually it's only a five, you win five games and you can win that. Yeah. You know? yeah. So whilst it's up there, I think anybody involved in the game sees the league as really the pinnacle of, of achievement. Yep. Uh, do you guys play... Uh any clubs from, let's say, the Spanish League or the, the, the yeah, German League or anything like that? Greek leagues, so, so therefore, having laid the land for the British Basketball League, that's who we are. Now, what happens is, obviously, FIBA controls the European competition. Um, and we have a couple of tiers of competitions there. So you've got the Euro League, obviously, which is the top league uh -huh. uh, in Europe. Then you have the Champions League and the Europe Cup. Now, you need to qualify. So the top two teams in this country could apply to enter that competition. Mm -hmm. Now, up until recently, a lot of clubs haven't done that because, again, it's very expensive. So, I mean, you know, a budget, when I say a budget, I don't necessarily mean a player budget, but I mean like a club budget yep. in the UK could be anywhere from 500 to a million, 500,000 to 750,000 pounds or dollars, let's mm -hmm. say. Whereas you look at a club like uh, Milan, and their budget overall is about twenty-four million. Oh, okay. You know? <laughs> or you look at Barcelona; it's at thirty million. Cheska Moscow, fifty mm -hmm. million. Yep. So you know you're now talking about small NBA teams <laughs> yep. versus people like us. So it's tough to enter the competition. But last year and this year we did enter the competition. So this year, you know, we had the the opportunity to play against teams from Germany, teams from Turkey, teams from Russia. Um, and and you know we did you know competitively reasonably well. Mm -hmm. uh, so for us. For us, uh, it's been a learning process because it's a different style of game. Uh, it's, it's tough because of the travel, because now you're traveling, you know, 11, 12, 18 hours. You've got, to tra you've got to always be there the day before the game to practice, practice on the day of the game, play the game, come back, and maybe have to play a home game in your own local competition. Mm -hmm. um, the European competitions normally take place midweek, let's say Tuesdays or Wednesdays. So you could be playing at a game at home on a Sunday, traveling for a European game on the Wednesday, getting back on Thursday and playing a home game on the Friday night, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not uncommon for us to play double headers Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, yep. or two in a weekend. Yep. So depending on how it all falls, uh, you could actually have a very, very tough schedule. Mm -hmm. Very good.
A pen and a napkin university is offering you, our listeners, a great opportunity to learn more about coaching above and beyond the a pen and a napkin universe. In our video series detailing personal growth and development, you can purchase videos on topics like interviewing for a job, basketball analytics, and fundraising and social media. Go to a pen and a napkin.com and follow the links to order. Videos are $10 a piece, or you can get the bundle for $50. That's less than $8 a video. We also have our defensive series available. Those videos are $10 a piece, or you can get the three-video bundle for $25. Check out the A Pen and a Napkin University Video Library. Coach, uh, you, you, you talked about that stuff, uh, and you brought up football. You used the S word first. I'm going to hold you to that the rest of the pod here. Uh, rugby, cricket, uh, that type of thing. What are some unique things that you guys have to do uh, marketing your game? As as kind of a, uh, I guess we'll call it a little bit of an underdog. You're you're a tear down from those traditional uh, British sports. In some ways, uh, it's it's the it's the reverse here in the United States. There's a lot of people that are passionate about yeah. European football yeah. here in the United States, but they feel boxed <coughs> in because of baseball and American football and basketball, and they're trying to to push up through into that tier, just like you guys are pushing, trying to push it up there in Britain. So what are some of the challenges that you faced in trying to grow your game uh, there in Britain? Yes, I mean, that's a very, very good question, a very good point. Um, I mean, obviously, the, pin the pinnacle of the situation is trying to get ourselves on what we call Sky Television. So Sky Television is, is like a cable, if you like, in the States, but it's it's known for its sports, and all the Premier yep. League is being shown on that. So being on there is, is a great place to be. And we currently have... I think we're in the second or third year of a deal we have with them where there's a game every Friday, um, which is a great highlight for the sport. Now, obviously, we've got that now, and I said a two- or three-year deal, but we didn't have that for a period of time. So when you're not on television, it's almost like you don't exist. So yeah. you've got to find different ways. Now, obviously, social media is one area that's been very big for a lot of clubs. Mm -hmm. Now, so we made sure that we try and capture what we all, as sports fans, love to see. We all want to see how the players prepare. We want to see what's happening behind the scenes. We want to see what's happening in the changing room. Um, making little mini documentaries, you know, short five-minute pieces on YouTube. These are ways of getting that flavor out to the fans who want to know that. Is, is, that, is, that, something, is that something you have to talk to your players about? You, you may not like this, but we need to do this in order to grow the game. If you want to make more money, here's the little things we need to do to market the game here in Britain. Oh, very much so. You yep. have to do because you know if you think about it, we have a mix of players. You've got the local player, we've got maybe a European or two, and then two or three uh, Americans mm -hmm. who could come from different types. I mean, and obviously over here, you know, we you know we class the import player or the American player, and we say, oh, the American. But actually, you know, if a guy comes from Alabama or a guy comes from California, they may as well come from two different countries in terms of. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, so, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. You know, so you, you can't just lump them together because he may be coming from New York, so very actually. Very social media savvy, but some other places, you know, maybe not, you know. Yep. So it's important to make sure that you take everybody with you on that journey. Otherwise, you know, you, you, you might get a letdown. So we let the guys understand that, look, this is why we're trying to do this. But guys can see the direct benefit of that. So, for instance, if we make sure that we are, we're sponsored by a local pizza company and we have to go and do a little video of us making pizzas in the kitchen, but actually the players can go there and eat whenever they want. That's a direct <laughs> benefit. So they understand Absolutely. Exactly what's going on. You know, and, and that's just a, a little microcosm of the kind of things, you know, if you want a car now in, in London, we don't actually give our players cars because there's nowhere to drive to. It's, you know, 12 miles an hour, mm -hmm. three hours to get to one block. So but if you live outside where you're going to be driving and you live in Sheffield and you need to drive to practice, where's that car going to come from? We've got to do some work with the local car dealership, mm -hmm. you know, and so 
my initial vision for what I wanted to create as a basketball club was this kind of hybrid of what kind of happens in college with booster clubs and, and this kind of stuff. You know, yep. you can't earn money in college. So listen, if you need extra food, go down to Bob's Butchers. His daughter used to be at the college. He'll make sure you're okay. Mm -hmm. You know, go down to, to Bill's car dealership. You'll be fine. Mm -hmm. That kind of stuff. So if we kind of, you know, package that up nicely, that's what clubs are looking to do. Because if we can take away, if we, have, if we haven't got the money, the best thing you can do is take away costs, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you can do that in barter and so on. And, and the clubs are very, very good at doing that. And that's obviously a way of making life much easier for the players because, okay, you may not earn as much as you might earn in Greece, but actually you don't have to spend any money while you're here in the UK. Everything's taken care of for you, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. Um And then, of course, the big area, which kind of is a, is a two-pronged attack, is around community activities, mm -hmm. you know. So, for instance... Obviously, on the one hand, we'd like to have a great junior program developing the young players, getting them playing basketball at an earlier age, give them advantage. So we might set up a basketball academy at a, at a, at a college or at a university. Um, and also, our players may be able to earn additional money by maybe going in to do some of the, assist with some of the coaching. You know, maybe if we've got a big guy on our team, maybe he shows up once a week at the university to do a little bit of a big man session on a, on a Friday morning, you yep. know, that kind of stuff. And that's, I think that's beneficial across the board, not just from a raising finance point of view, but I think it gives the players a little bit of connection to the community and understand that they give it back and see their role in that as well. And of course, you know, it enables the younger players to get motivated to, to keep on playing. Yeah. And, and that was, you, you led me right into my next question here, coach, um, uh, great minds think alike here. So, uh, what what you you talked about the business side of things, uh, and and that uh, what are what are things that are being done to grow the game itself to develop players that are British born players to to put a a greater uh, native born British product out there uh, on the court to try and and raise the level of the game it, itself. You know, you got. Uh, you know, kids that are, you know, again, dreaming to play for Liverpool and Manchester City and, and all yeah. of those. Hey, you know what? This whole basketball thing's pretty fun, too. It's actually better. And taking a look at your 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 body, your skill set, the way that you move, this basketball thing might be better for you than the than the football thing. So, so what are some yeah. things that you guys are doing to try and grow the game in that way? Well, you see, the big way we've been doing that is every single professional club has to have a development pathway. Okay. Right mm -hmm. now, and and the, and the goal, obviously, as we all know, as basketball coaches, is you know how much earlier can we start the youngsters playing? That's the first thing I think. You know, because over the years, that's where we've always been a step behind. I I, I said I didn't start till I was seventeen. A lot of guys who play in the league didn't start till they were fifteen. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that you know NBA teams are already are already keeping their eyes on players at eight years old. Yep. You know, and if and if we cross it again back to football and rugby, their kind of scouting uh, strategy is deep into the community. They know. That there's a kid over there at eight years old who's going to turn out to be six foot seven. They're already working on him before he even thinks about basketball. Mm. So we've got to challenge that. So, so the synergy comes from a, a number of things. So, firstly, we have a, long, a number of junior clubs um, for just you know come and play, low level, come and play. From there, you know, clubs can then begin to say, okay, how do we get these kids into under twelve competition, under fourteen competition, sixteen, eighteens. You know, so in our case, we every club is very similar. We set up little Lions clubs at various recreation centers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can get 40, 50 kids playing in all these centers. We have our coaches continuously going around working 
with the actual coaches based in those centers, identifying the kids that we think, right, okay, look, these are the 20 we should be focusing on for the under-12 competition, 14s and so mm -hmm. on. Now, because of the school system here, once they get to 16 and they go to that kind of high school situation, um, we call those academies, mm -hmm. you know. So now it's that's where the, 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 the level of coaching has to take another step up because they've really got to be, you know, linked with the club like we discussed. But also, you know, are we playing some of the same style? Mm -hmm. You know, so if it's a free-flowing style of basketball, if it's a set style of basketball, how are we bringing these kids into that format at the age of 15, 16, 17? Because actually, if you've got a kid who's 16 at that stage, he might already be able to play with the men's team if he's not having to battle with the learning how we play. Yep. It's more about just challenging physicality. So we all have academies that do that. And then, then we come to our biggest obstacle because at that stage, that's when these kids are thinking, hang on a minute, I could go to junior college in the States. Yeah. I could go yeah. to an NCAA college. Yep. You know? So so there's a period of that 17 to 19 piece where we lose, I would say, 60% of our talent. Oh, you okay. Know? Yeah. Now, that's happening to us at the moment. If you look at other countries like Greece and Spain and Turkey, that doesn't happen because they've kind of really improved that level of their basketball and the link with the professional team. So actually, an 18-year-old, 6'10 kid in Turkey is probably earning money already mm -hmm. and is earmarked to be our long-term center over the next seven years. Okay. So he, actually, he or she actually knows there's a future without having to go to college in the States. Okay. Um, because when you ask the kids, you know, why do you want to go to college in the States? Obviously, their answer is normally around the lifestyle, what they've seen on TV, playing in NCAA arenas, the Final Four, all of that sexy stuff. Mm -hmm. Until you remind them that actually the reason they're wanting to do that is to be able to be in position to earn a, a job. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so if you can earn your job before that, would you take it? W without it. leaving home. Exactly. Yeah. Without leaving home. So now that's a conundrum. It's upon us as professional clubs to put to those kids of 17, 18, 19 to say, yes, you want to go to college. And now if you wanted to go to Kentucky or Baylor, like we have a young kid from Milton Keynes and Baylor, or you want to go to Wake Forest, we can understand that that's high level and we understand what those potentials may mean. Mm -hmm. But if you want to go to a Division three school in Wisconsin, maybe the, you know a smaller contract here that leads you onto your full-time job might be better. Yep. So as clubs, we're putting ourselves in that position. So the final piece of the puzzle that we've now solved is our links with universities. So now, yeah. if we do have a kid who wants to do that, we have relationships and scholarships with universities so that kid at 19 can enroll into class at university but train full-time with the professional men's team. Yep. You okay. know? Yep. So it then becomes interesting you know, when, when our kid who's gone to Wisconsin for four years comes back versus our kid who stayed here in the University of London and playing with the men for four years, when they both come together now at 22... Yep. Which, how has it worked out? And, and that's the stage that we're at now in that development continuum. Yeah, so you, you won't have that official data for five, six, seven years, but you're, but you're making steps and you're, you're pushing that forward, yeah. Correct. Um, Correct. Do you guys, uh, and when I say you guys, I'm talking about owners and developers of the game in, in, in Britain, uh, is there some pushback? from the, the traditional British sports? Are, are you getting some pushback from the soccer clubs? Are you getting some pushback from the cricket clubs? 
or or are they are they are they and, and i'm saying when i say that i mean the competition for the kids hey we really want them to play basketball that's you know 20 years ago that kid was going to be a football kid but now this this ah, you, you know god that mckay from uh or i'm sorry macaulay from a from a london the london lions he's just a pain in the tuchus he we had this we had this uh midfield defender that was going to be awesome but now he's playing point guard why well, god you know that guy's driving me nuts <laughs> yeah. you know uh, you know, is, is has there been any of that type of stuff? Not yet. I think at the moment we're just at the moment we're just a fly on the back. Okay. At the moment. <laughs> okay, I got gotcha. you. You know, because at the moment their reach and depth and what they do in that stuff, and then their own academies. Because once the kids hit eleven or twelve, they literally take them away into their own academies. So they probably don't even see us at the moment, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because I, I saw a piece recently around some of the British footballers, because actually, because of the Europe and everything else, um, even some of the British footballers are being lost through the cracks, mm-hmm. you know, because if they were, if, you know, imagine, uh, I mean, we're fortunate to have a guy called Trent Alexander playing at uh, Liverpool, who's probably the best in the world at his position, and he's only 20 years old, you know, homegrown. But if you look at some of the other teams, the entire team is foreign. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if I'm at the academy at that place, I'm not getting a chance to play. So a lot of kids are being cut loose at 16, 17, 18, who thought they were going to be professional footballers. Um, and now people are setting up subsidiary academies gotcha. for talented athletes. So yes, you were going to be a footballer. Come to our academy. You may still be a footballer, but you can try your hand at other sports. Gotcha. Now that's mm-hmm. going to be an interesting impact on how that you know affects you know, good athletes. But but at the moment, we're not affecting that because we're not doing anything like the amount of numbers that we should be doing. I think what will happen is as, our, as the investment into our league uh, has come in and our league continues to grow, I, I think fashionably, musically, coolness-wise, we're the sport. We know that. We also, in basketball, know that. The money doesn't say that yet. Yep. And once the money starts to move in that direction as we grow... I think the competition becomes will become a lot tougher. Yep, yep, awesome. Um, what would you like to see? You guys play by the FIBA rules. Uh, yeah. Uh, what would you like to? If there was one, two, three American rules of the game that you would like to see FIBA adopt, what would it be? <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to ask me that question the other way around? <laughs> well, I am going to ask you the question the other way around. I am going to ask you that. So how about we do that? Let's do that. What would you like to see the American yeah. game adopt from FIBA? Yes, I, th- I think straight off the bat, every competition, once you get to over 16, should be on that 24-second clock. I think, I mean, I'm watching college games. I mean, first of all, I love your, 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 uh, your social media stuff, and I love the little stuff. But when you watch college games, it's almost like, Right, let's just pass the ball around seven times, knock some 10 seconds off this clock, and see what's going on. <laughs> Coach, you have not seen anything yet. You come over here to the States, and, and I tell you what, you come to Omaha, Nebraska, and we'll go check out a high school game without a shot clock. And, I'll, and oh, I got no, some, I got some things that. to show you there. So if you, think, <laughs> if you think that can be boring at times, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. And that's what I mean. You see, so I think I think for sure. I think we should all be playing on the same twenty-four second clock. I think we should take away. I know. Some, I know some of the timeouts are uh, are um, uh, media timeouts and things like that. I think I, I do think we need to reduce that. Uh, and you, you know, I, I was obviously at the I was at the final fours this uh, this past few weeks. Um, 
And I'd actually forgotten that halftime was 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking, where is everybody? <laughs> you know, I mean, we've got, <laughs> over here, we've got 15 minutes halftime. And sometimes, if you want, between you, you can actually decide to come and come back in 10. But yeah. 20 minutes, I mean, it's, it's almost a, a whole other game. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of felt sorry for North Carolina in the final because it's, the Mets would have played a whole other game in the second half, you know, with, with 25 points in the first for Kansas. So, I, I, I think, you know, too many timeouts. So I think that's something we could cut out there on the, on the, on the other side of the Atlantic there. Uh, third one, uh, I'm not sure I can come up with a third one off the bat. But I think those two mm-hmm. would bring us closer together because I think that's where we want to be. I mean, obviously the NBA is another level and the you know, yep. gather step, third step, all of that stuff, we know it's entertainment. I think anybody who's a purist knows that's just about entertainment. Yep. You know, you don't, you don't want to put referees have it tough enough without having to put them in that kind of a judgment situation. Yep. Um, but I think the, the closer we can have the game together, the more we all can enjoy it together, I think. Yeah. You're, you're, you're talking about the shot clock there in, in, in our state here in Nebraska. Uh, we More and more high schools are adopting the shot clock. Uh, yeah. Iowa is, is having it for every single high school in, in Iowa. South Dakota has had it for a long time. Minnesota has, I think they have it now. Uh, Kansas has had it for a while. Uh, in Nebraska, we voted on it, and it was actually voted down. And then they did a revote, and uh, all of <laughs> and they basically adopted it for the biggest schools. Uh, we so in 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 Nebraska, we have different tiers based on the the population yeah. of the schools. And so the biggest schools. So you're talking about the Omaha school area, uh, the Lincoln, uh, the Lincoln schools, Lincoln, Nebraska schools, and some of the bigger schools around the the state in the smaller communities. They're going to have the shot clock, but smaller schools right. like I coach at still are not going to have it for at least the time being. Uh, even though there's wow. been a there's been a pretty big push for it. So there's there's still. That, that kind of fight for it. Uh, most of the coaches I mean, I mean, want it. Are there actually people there who say it's good for the game to have no shot clock? Yes, there are. <laughs> I'd love to listen to those arguments. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, we'll set up another one of these, and we'll, we'll I'll try to find somebody that, that does. So uh, you're, I'm not one of them. I, I believe in the no, shot clock. No. I believed, I've, I've believed in the shot clock for a long time. Uh, we're going to have a 35-second shot clock for our Class A schools here uh, next year, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. I think eventually it'll trickle down uh, to where it'll it'll just be a uniform thing pretty much across the United States. But there are those that are still holding out on, on that shot clock that's issue. So Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. But, yeah, so I think I think that's going to change, personally. I just think – I can't see the benefit. I, I mean, I just – I actually, if I was to argue for it, I, I, can't, I can't think of an argument for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, we'll see if we can keep it moving forward here. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Want to know more about a pen and a napkin and all its resources it offers? Go to apenandanapkin.com, a great resource for any coach at any level. A pen and a napkin university videos are available to order, along with hundreds of pages of notes, from one-page handouts to book breakdowns to original coaching notes. A pen and a napkin.com is a coaching resource that will help you become a better coach. Coach McCauley, at this time, we are, we're going to do a little transition. Uh, we've got, uh, at this time, we're going to go with our John Wooden quote of the day. And, uh, 
you know, Coach Wooden, you know, perhaps the greatest coach of all time of any sport at any place. Um, I'm not going to say anything about like a, a Sir Alex Ferguson or something like that, you know. Uh, <laughs> but Bill Shankly, more likely. Uh, what's that? Bill Shankly is a great oh. coach of Liverpool. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but uh, Coach Coach Wooden. And and I saw this quote, and after I went through some some of your uh, social media stuff, I, I really thought this quote fit you uh, because I was I was so impressed with uh, your willingness to take a stand on on some controversial issues. So I'm going to read this quote, Coach, and, and just kind of talk about how this kind of fits you, I guess. All right, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. The John Wooden quote of the day is: "Being a role model." is the most powerful form of educating. Too often, fathers neglect it because they get so caught up in making a living, they forget to make a life. And I don't say that in the sense of you being a father or anything like that, but not only have you been passionate about basketball, but you're passionate about uh, the rights of of minority peoples. Uh, You are uh, passionate for, not only are you pushing basketball, but you've been passionate about pushing women's basketball in Britain as well. Uh, you know, it's it's a tough go pushing men's basketball uh, in your situation, and, and you're even taking it another step further. And me as a, as a guy who's coached women's basketball most of my career, I really appreciate that stuff. And, and just I've just been really impressed with the type of role model that you've been for uh, not only the game, uh, but for other really, really important topics. And uh, when when I saw that, I thought that fit you really well. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. It's it's. It, I, I'm glad that some people do see that. Um, but I mean, it's something that comes naturally to me. I believe I, I believe in all of those things. So it, it, you know, it is natural to me. I, I have five sisters, uh, so that so you can imagine our house with my five sisters. My wife my has mom. five sisters, so yes, yes, I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. You know, so so that's really important. But also, you know, I, I mentioned the guy who brought me into basketball, Jimmy Rogers. You know, Jimmy was the first black guy to play for, for, for the country. He was in the army. He was an orphan. And, and he instilled those those things in me at a, at a very um, impressionable age, you know, 17, 18. Because in Liverpool, at that time, I was living in Liverpool 8, which is a, a tough part of Liverpool. Um I, I'm fairly outgoing, so I could have very easily gone down the wrong road, you mm-hmm. know. And Jimmy kept me on the straight and narrow, pointed out a few things to me, and um, and, and I've always wanted to do that for my players, mm-hmm. you know, for all the players who come to me from wherever, whether from the states, whether from here. I mean, I still have so many of my players who message me regularly about what a great time they had with us together, uh, and it's important to me to see that these people are, are young men and young women. In the case of the women's team, they're not just players for now. These are human beings and, and people who should be part of our family, and I feel strongly about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you know just from the little that I know of you here and and the conversation we've had today, you've, you you fit that you fit that uh, transformational coach uh, to a T. And, and Thank so, you so much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's dive in here. Uh, let's dive into your coaching philosophy here. Uh, we, we've got a few things that you wanted to talk about, uh, or that you're willing to talk about when it came to, you know, I'm going to have you put your coach's hat back on here. Um, you know, one of the things, and, and 
you know, you folks at the professional level have a little bit more time than we do at the at the high school level to really dive in on some analytics. Uh, we can; it, it's easier for us now, uh, but it's still we have to teach six or seven hours a day before we go to the gym, uh, you know, and <laughs> and do that type of stuff. So, uh, but I, I, whenever I, I talk to a, a a college coach or somebody like you that that's their full time job, I always like to talk to them about analytics because again, you guys just have a little bit more time to break those things down and and really look at the game. So, so when you were coaching. Uh, what were some of the important statistics and analytics that you looked at, that you judged your team on, that you were sharing with your players, and why were those things important? How did you share it with your teams, so forth and so on? And and at this point, I'm just going to let you go, Coach, and and I will if 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 something comes up, I'll chime in and 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 follow up with a question or whatever. But you just go ahead and let it rip. Sure. Well, I think the first thing to say about those analytics and, and those kind of things is obviously you always have to temper that with the eye test, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, numbers are numbers and numbers are great, you know, but it's about the eye test because sometimes, well, for me anyway, as an experienced coach over many years, there's things that I feel and see on the floor. Um, and if, as long as those numbers back it up or if there's things that I don't see clearly and the numbers can nudge me in a particular direction, then I can look closer at that particular topic. So it's always important to, to always remember you've got to have that eye test. And then the second piece around that is <clears throat> that basically a lot of that is going to be predicated by how you choose to play. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when it comes to your style of play, the personnel you have, obviously, as a professional team, you know, your personnel is going to change every year, probably. So one minute you want to press, the next minute you don't. One minute you want to speed it up, the next minute you want to slow it down. So it all depends on all of those things. So you've really got to understand how you built your team and what it is you want to achieve. So. Earlier on, I was always going to be a gung-ho kind of coach because of, of, of how I played as a player, which was full court pressing, trapping, jumping, surprising people. But then when you get to that other higher level where you're playing more important games, more games more often, you might want to pick and choose that and, and play it differently. I never used to play the gap defense. Then I started playing the gap defense. Then I never. I always used to push to the side. Now I like to push to the middle. So... It just depends on what you have on your team. And you need to know that so you don't just swallow the, the, the numbers. Mm-hmm. So in my case, I always feel that at the moment, what I like, I like a high-paced game at the moment, right? So I like going up and down. I like recruiting players 6'7", six, 6'6", six, 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 you know, who can run, jump, shoot, press. Now, in order to do that, you want to think about what you can take away from the opposition. So if you can get the ball up in the air early, Shoot, shoot from the corners, shoot in the transition 45, get into our pick and roll, looking for the corners again, those kind of things. So for me, the first thing I like is around about the field goal percentage in relation particularly to the three-point shot. So um, I've set a goal. I'm not sure we ever met that goal this past 18 months or so to try and put up 43 pointers a game. Oh, wow. Which is an inordinate amount of three pointers, yes. Now, we regularly shoot between 33 and 37 three-pointers a game. Um, now, obviously... There's a caveat to that in that that's a volume amount of shots. What's the percentages on that? So that's why field goal percentage is a key thing for me. Um, if we're getting how many shots we put up? Thirty-three. What's the percentage? Fifty. You've got to love it. Yeah. What's the percentage? Eleven. Oh, shoot. <laughs> why? <laughs> what's happened? What's gone wrong? Why has that happened? Now, so so that's the first one. Now, obviously, what that then leads to is 
how many shots, because it then becomes not just how many threes, it then becomes, well, how many shots did we take as a group, whether that's a quarter, half-time, or, or three-quarter, or the end of the game, and how many shots did they take? You know, and then, of course, that leads you into extra possessions and what causes those extra possessions. So, to the point of analytics, that's the first thing I look at from an offensive standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um what what, what was the uh, what was the what was the influence with that? You know, how did you arrive at that number of forty threes a game? Uh, you know, when you were coaching, how were you explaining that and selling that importance to your players? That type of thing. Right. So that's a good, that's a good one. So the thing is, I try to impress on the players that we want to play fast, and it's really important that players understand that playing fast doesn't mean shoot the first shot. Mm-hmm. Right, so you need to let them understand. Playing fast means a pace, you know, with spacing, with opportunity. So you've got the ball, but if I don't space and I don't give you an opportunity to pass to me, I'm not available, and you only, your your options are limited. So you got to understand that they've got to understand that playing fast means playing fast on the ball and off the ball. First thing. Second thing is players like to put up shots. You know, we all, we all know that, right? Players oh yeah, like to put up shots. Also, it's fun to watch. You know, it's fun to watch. And then and then if that's how you want to play and you're able to recruit for that, then that's great. So over the last few years, you know, we've been the best three-point shooting team in the country. So by continuously recruiting good three-point shooters who are athletes, that means we can get to the spot before the opposition and we can get the open look at the three-point shot. Mm-hmm. You know, so it kind of dovetails together because also it then means what you're trying to take away from your opponent is can you match us? You know, on 80 possessions when we're shooting 43s. Mm-hmm. Chances are you're not going to be able to. Um, but, you know, then, of course, that becomes where we get into our, our coaching exercise. So yeah. so that's why that number came out. So that, in terms of the, the actual number 40, the number 40 simply came about because the average, at the time when I was looking at it, the average numbers of threes put up by teams in our league was about 25 to 26, mm-hmm. you know. Then I saw that in the NBA, they were putting up more than that sometimes, Yeah, you know? So, okay, I took away the extra two minutes per quarter and then worked out that 40 was a good number, 10 threes a, 10 threes a quarter. You yep. know, that would really put a lot of pressure on the defense. Who uh, was there? Was there any uh, coach or, or coaches or styles that you looked at to, uh, as you dove into that aspect of it, who did you study? Uh, to to kind of pick and choose to to, to eventually fit your uh, f- to fit your philosophy. Who did you pick and choose from? Who'd you take stuff from to to put that all together for for those well, for, for folks that want to take a look at that? Yeah, well, obviously, it's, you know, you you got to you got to look at Golden State Warriors. You know, you got to look at them because that's how they play. You know, um, Phoenix Suns actually did something very similar uh, as well. Um, when you go back in the time of um, um, the seven seconds or less, yeah, the, Nash. The seven seconds or less. So yep. yeah, so exactly. So I would say to our guys, five seconds or less, and see how we got on with that. You know, um, so that's that's what I was looking at in that time. But of course, that's when also the NBA started doing a lot of what they call the two side offense, mm-hmm. um, where the guys got to run to the corners and the trading forty fives, which spreads the floor very wide. And when you do that. Again, you're putting pressure on the defense coverage-wise. So mm-hmm. I studied a lot of that two-side as well. And we actually initiate a lot, of, a lot of our stuff from the two-side before we go into either the flow offense or our set offenses. And that's what we run gotcha. predominantly. So <clears throat> you know, we like a situation where um, if you don't score against us and we get the rebound, we're going straight into the two-side and flow. Okay. You know, if you score on us, then we have a menu of set plays for that game. You know, so, you know, four, five, six, seven plays within that 
that series against that particular opponent that we will, that we will then dial up, you know, if you score the bucket. Mm -hmm. So that's how we try and break up the game. Um, so, you know, so that's, that was my offensive philosophy there. And that's how it related to the numbers, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and like I said, those numbers then lead to, to possessions. And then you start looking defensively then, you know, did, you know why did they get more possessions than us or, or vice versa? Um, now, obviously, <clears throat> earlier on in my career, I used to, like I said, I used to play a lot more aggressive defense, uh, a lot of run and jump stuff, which was influenced by, by some of the Kentucky guys. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually stepped away from that. Now, I started looking at more of what happens with Nick Nurse in the Toronto Raptors. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, the gap defense that they play, if you look at the breakdown on some of that stuff, it starts off as a gap defense, but changes and morphs into different things depending on their opponent, which I thought was very clever. Uh, that's always what Nick turns to do. Now, um, we like to push our, we like to push all our guys into the middle. Mm -hmm. um, we like to have a big defensive center, athletic shot blocker, um, and that way we feel that we don't expose our center through. So, if we were to push to the sides in the gap defense, our center is always exposed every time the guard is beaten. Mm -hmm. So, every time the guard is beaten, he's likely to get a foul. Mm -hmm. So if we push to the middle, it just clogs the middle. It gives so many filters before it ever gets to our guy. And by the time it gets to our guy, it's actually, you know, in effect, taking the force out of the hurricane, if you like, yeah. and he can block the shot, you know? So that's what we like to do. But we like to be flexible as to whether we, you know, trap screens or uh, or, or, or um, ice screens or whatever. We like to be flexible as to... And you can do that within the concept of the gap defense. So by doing that, it now comes back to those defensive numbers in terms of turnovers, steals, block shots, and rebounds at the defensive end to stop those guys getting more possessions than us. So the perfect game, we end up with more possessions than them. We're shooting a number of threes we want to at the right clip, and we believe we win that game. Mm -hmm. So so those are the numbers I always look at, at the metrics. Um, Three-point shots, field goal percentage, number of possessions, and why. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. You talked about three-point shooters and obviously shooting the, the ball a lot. And with your situation, uh, you're recruiting shooters. You're trying to sign shooters to your club. Uh, but uh, as much as I would like to sign shooters to my high school team, uh, that's, uh, you know, if you want to give me a little help with that, I'd appreciate it, coach. But, uh, but uh, uh, no, if anybody's listening from the Nebraska Schools Association, I'm not paying my players. All right. So let's be clear on that. So, <laughs> but uh, Correct. yes. Uh, but uh, what are some things that you guys did? You know, you, you're, you're, you're bringing in good shooters. You, you want to put an emphasis on shooting. Now that you guys got, uh, now you have those players on your club, what are you doing in practices to encourage uh, the three-point shot? How are you developing three-point shooters? Uh, what are some drills that, that you like to, to get a lot of those three-point shots up in a game-like situation? Yeah, I mean, and that's, uh, I like the, the, the end there, in a game-like situation, because again, coaching has changed over the years, uh, and has my, as has my coaching over the years. Also, something that uh, I should point out is obviously over the last 20 years, I haven't been to anybody else's practices because I'm always coaching yep. from August to May. So I don't, I mean, I've been to clinics all day long, but I haven't actually been to somebody else's practice. So one of the things I've been doing these past few months when I've had the time is to go and visit other clubs and see what they do in practice and how different it may or may not be to, to what I do. Um, so in terms of uh, what we do in practice, we make sure we get a lot of reps, right? So mm -hmm. that's, that's key. Um, we do. We, 
I know it's not popular necessarily, but we still do a lot of form shooting because at the end of the day, you know, players, you know, in as much as good shooters, no matter how many they miss, think they're going to make the next shot, they're, they're aware when they're in a slump. So it's important that they have opportunities to fix that slump uh, in a nice, calm environment, which is where the form shooting comes in. Then after that, we like to put in a bunch of short little drills. Now, we, we, you know, we have short 45-second uh, drills that we put into little breaks of practice uh, that's competitive. Once you can get... The big thing is, once you get the players being competitive, then game shots is not a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't say to them, oh yeah, go and shoot and make them game shots. You just can't do that automatically. The way to do it is, right, three on the right side of the floor, three on the left side of the floor, two spots, 45 seconds, go. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. they will get game shots up because they're going to try and beat each other. Yep. So we do that a number of times to break up practice. Um, the other things that we do is, some of the other type of three ball, two man shooting to create a situation. You know, so I could say, if I notice from my last look at the stats that actually, you know, my guy has made all his shots at the top but missed all his shots in the corner, I'll restrict their, their role. So I'll say, right, it's three men, two balls, shoot the ball, get your own rebound, pass to the open man. Billy, you can only shoot in the corners. Fred, you can only shoot on the angles, blah, blah, blah. So now you suddenly have a high-paced, high-octane high drill where they're shooting exactly where you want them to shoot at the speed that you want them to shoot it. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, number, the other thing which I learned from Coach Nick Nurse, and, and I keep referring to Coach Nick Nurse, by the way, in case those some of your fans don't know, you know, Nick Nurse you know, played he, against me here in the UK and was a fellow coach against me here. Yep. We're very proud of his achievements yep. uh, over yep. there. Yep. Um, and one of the things that he does is basically when you walk into the gym as a player, every single shot you take till you leave is charted. Mm -hmm. Whether it's in the middle of practice, before practice, after practice, it is charted. So it's an opportunity to see over a bigger window of a week or a month or two months how your shooting is doing and if there's any relationship between that in practice and what you're doing in the games. Mm -hmm. You know, So we try and do that. We try and chart every shot we ask the players to do. We try and chart it. I put it onto my, uh, my Excel sheet and I, and I have a little graph of the guys and I can see there's a problem uh, that, that's related to the game. So, so to, to your question, we make sure we get those reps and we make sure that um, we record those reps. Perfect. Coaches, I love doing a pen and a napkin. It is something that was intended to become a hobby, but it's become a passion and it's been such a blessing in my life. I love helping coaches and I hope that I've been able to help you in some way, shape, or form. I want to do more, but I need your help to do that. I've recently opened up a Patreon page to help a pen and a napkin grow even further and I appreciate any help that you would be willing to give to a pen and a napkin. From the layup tier to the three-point tier, and for as little as $3 a month, your generosity will enable a pen and a napkin to grow and develop even greater projects than we've already done. For more information, go to apenandanapkin.com and go to the Patreon link, or go to patreon.com backslash apenandanapkin. A couple, uh, couple of, Coach, you, you, we're still good here. You got time for one or two more things to talk about? Oh, yeah, 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 we're good, we're good. All right, awesome. You talked a little bit about your defensive philosophy. You talked a little bit about your half-court defensive philosophy, uh, but you're also a pressure defense guy. Uh, you talked a little bit about the, the, the run and jump, the old Patino stuff with the Kentucky teams in the 90s, and, and that's me. I love doing that as well. <laughs> so you, you hit my wheelhouse here. Uh, what, are, what are some things that you've done over the years uh, to to implement pressure defense, uh, you know why why is that important to have in your in your repertoire in your arsenal? Uh, you know how do you implement that? How do you sell it with your team? Just talk about your your pressure defense philosophy and everything that goes with it here a little bit. So, I 
but I think um, just to, again a bit of background. So um, a lot of what I did was obviously from what I learned as a player. But then eventually, I, I was fortunate to meet with uh, Coach Dean Smith uh, from North Carolina. You bet. Uh, one of his one of his players, a good friend of mine, Steve Bucknell, uh, from here in the UK. Um, and Steve ran um, some camps in in, in London, and, and Coach Dean Smith came along. And um, after the camp, I had a time to spend some time with him and, and have some dinner with him, and we talked about the philosophies. And and he was he had his book, and, and he told me about all the stuff they did and. And he said that um, before every season starts, he holds a clinic in, in North Carolina, uh, North Carolina, and he would invite any coaches to come and watch what they were going to do this season. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, obviously, apart from the people in your conference. He said, no, 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 we invite everybody. I said, what people are you going to play? He said, yes. I said, well, why? He said, well, that's the beauty of it. The beauty of what we teach as basketball is this is what we're going to do and if you stop it, we're going to do this. So you've got a choice. You can either let us do what we want to do, or you can try and stop us so we can do this. <laughs> so, so, and, and that's stuck in my mind for so long. Uh-huh. And, and I've gone on to do the same thing as that and actually had open sessions for people to come and see what we're going to do. So that's helped me strengthen my preparation as a coach mm-hmm. in terms of you know, what I said to you earlier about how you recruit the players to your style of play and what you want. So I would often sit down and say, well, how do we want to play? You know, we've got these guys here, or I've, lo- I've lost the guy I thought I was going to have, you know, that yep. kind of a situation. Yep. So, so we would have this clearly thought out plan of what it was we were going to do. So just by going through the things of, look, well, okay, you know, I think if we haven't got as good a team as we thought we had, we can certainly equal the odds a bit by pressurizing them. So that would be mm-hmm. the first thing. Do we want to pressurize them in a zone press? Do we want to pressurize them in a man press? Do we want to surprise them? You know, do they have good ball handlers? So again, that's I think that's one thing. I don't know how it happens in college necessarily, but in the pro game, you've got to have the ability to tweak what you do depending on the opponent. Mm-hmm. Now, I've seen some coaches who say, oh, no, we don't care about them. We just do what we do. Now, I don't know. I mean, maybe you do or maybe you don't. I can't say that that's what I do. I think, you, I think, I think you have to have a balance. I mean, you have to, you have to, uh, you, you have to do what you do. You have to have your yeah. kids and, and your players have confidence in what you do. Uh, yeah. but like I've, I've, I've never believed. And, and again, what do I know? I'm, I'm just me, you know, but, um, I've never believed that you can be a guy or a gal that says, I'm just man-to-man. We're going to play half-court man-to-man. That's all we're going to do, and you've got to beat us doing that. Well, at some point, you're going to play somebody that is going to execute or have a, a dude or dudette that is going to yeah. be better than anything you can throw out in your man-to-man defense. So you've got to have a plan B. Um, and and now and, and in some ways, uh, you got to have a plan C. Now, if you get to pass Plan C and you're still strong, you're you're done. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. After Plan C, yeah. you're done, and I get that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I just I think you do have to have some flexibility. You have to have the ability to shape and shift and 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 be able to do different things uh, to match up with your opponent to a degree. Now, that doesn't mean you sell the house and we're going to change everything we do for this one game of against course, the London of Lions. Course, of course. But you yeah. got to have some options. You got to have some options yeah. with some different things. That's that's me. 
That's right. And so to that point, so when we're preparing them, we would say, right, okay, what's our situation as far as pressing and getting the ball up-tempo? Because we want to get the ball up-tempo. Yep. You know, and we might decide, well, okay, look, against the teams that maybe have better ball handling capabilities, we want to press them, but we want to do more of a 1-2-2 a or a 2-2-1 two, two, just to slow them down so that by the time they get over the halfway line, you know, we're already down to 15 seconds mm-hmm. now or 14 seconds, whatever it is. So so that's, that's one option. So you'd always want to make sure, and, and I tend to vary that so one you know a season or two it might be a two two one back into a man-to-man or, or zone if necessary or it might be a one to two so we, we change that every couple of seasons but it still does the same thing it slows them from running it controls them corrals them and allows us to get nicely into our defensive set so that's what and obviously you know it's important to let players understand that in those scenarios what you're trying to do is actually let them give you the ball you're not necessarily trying to steal the ball mm-hmm. so that always make that difference with the guys yep, yep. So then you say, okay, actually, I like the team we've got. I think we're explosive. And I think we're one bounce, two bounces from scoring at all times. So in that case, we want to be a bit more aggressive. Mm-hmm. So that's where the run and jump would come in. Now, the players love this because obviously it's about giving them the decision as to when to do it. Yep. Because, of course, this is, a, this is something else I explained to coaches. I actually did a clinic the other day when I explained the, the run and jump. I said, it's very difficult to practice run and jump because the minute we say we're going to practice a run and jump the opposition knows you're going to run and jump so you've lost the concept of the defense so we like to do that uh you, you know we will scramble it in in short sections in practice but because because we don't do that we you know we just have to make sure that look fellas we want to run and jump we're saying to you you decide when you want to do it. Yep. You know, and and for the last five six years, I've had the, the uh, one of the best British players ever, a guy by the name of Justin Robinson. You know, who loves to play that style, and he's a guard and he's up front, and he often tend, tended to initiate that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and obviously, so therefore, the, the opposition can never tell when it's coming. Yep. Um, yep. And that's beautiful. So so we like to do that, and, and I think the year we won the league, you know, we had a bunch of dunkers who were really explosive. So as soon as we turned the ball over. We were slamming it. And, you know, the last thing the, op- the opposition want to do is receive a dunk, get the ball out and get jumped on again. Yep. And, and you can really win games quick. <laughs> if, if you can, and, and I'm a big proponent of the run and jump. I love the run and jump. Uh, but it's, it's and, and what coaches don't understand, and, and Coach McCauley, I'm sure you can relate to this statement, it is a highly effective press, but it is probably the press that takes the longest to really perfect and teach because there's no... I don't want to say there's no designated rules, but with that freedom comes just a lot of read and react. And it's not like if you run a diamond press and you're trapping right away, okay, it's pretty simple. They throw it here, you rotate yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. You know, that type. Whereas the, the, the run and jump, it is all, okay, the ball's here. Uh, Joe's doing this and Pete's doing this, so I've got to do this. But if Joe does this, then Pete's going to do this, which means I've got to do this. And uh, you know, and so that's that's the that's the hard part of teaching the run and jump, don't you think? Yes, hundred percent. So that's so the big thing about the run and jump is it, it only becomes a really mature defense for you if you've got a team with chemistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, great that's point. That's what it needs. You, you need a team with chemistry. So I, I, I think we, we try not to run and jump if we don't have a, a shot blocker. That's the first thing. Um, we always make sure that we we chart uh, the run and jump. So we, you know, just because we've been dunked on twice doesn't mean we shouldn't run it again. Yep. You know. So we always make sure that the years that we're doing that, 
we make sure we chart it because you know what players are oh coach we are the dunks and going to come out of it so well actually we've run it 11 times we've stolen it nine times we've gone out of bounds the 10th and they've done oh i see all right let's yeah. stay in it coach yep. you know that kind of stuff um so the first thing is is you've got to have that but i actually think the most important player in that in that uh, run and jump is your third man what i call yep. your third man the guy who has to cover or reach or, retru- or yep. retreat yep and um if you don't have a guy that can make that decision confidently, then you can't run that defense. Mm-hmm. I got to write that down real quick. Hold on just a second. Listeners, um, <laughs> play some elevator music, that type of thing. I don't know. <laughs> um, yes, but yeah, that third man, you know, quick, agile. It doesn't, he's not always your most athletic. He's your, your quickest thinker with confidence. Yes, a great anticipator, yes. Uh, yes. What's, uh, give, us, give us a drill or two in teaching the run and jump that, that you implemented. Well, I mean, other than running it, that's it. You know, other than running it, you, you know? just so you just gotta let it rip. Yeah, yes, yeah. You, you can't drill it because if I'm the point guard on the on offense and we're trying to drill it, I'm just gonna cheat it. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know that I know it's coming. So what we do is um, we don't play as much these days. We don't play as much five on five as we used to do because now I like doing small sided drills, two two man, three man, four man. Um, so a lot of stuff is done in those segments. So. We, we value our, our five on fives when we do do it. I try to limit it between four and six minutes per segment uh, for five on five. And then I'll wander around and signal to one of the guards that we're in the run and jump. You decide. And then, of course, we get the opportunity to jump them two or three times. And then we'll mix and match it as we go. And, and that's what I do through the season. Not, not Right, guys, you know, team A is in run and jump. Team B is in. No, we, we try not to do that anymore. Sure. Gotcha. Uh, last thing I want to talk to you about, Coach, and again, we kind of talked about this with the wooden quote of the day. Uh, you know, I can tell that you're passionate about the development of your players, not only as players, but as people. And, and yep. you know, we as high school coaches, that's obviously our greatest mission. Very few of our players are going to go on to play college ball. And if we have yeah. somebody that goes on beyond college ball, then holy cow, we probably looked really smart for, for three or four years. Uh, but to talk about talk about your development of, of your players, uh, being a transformational coach, uh, how important is that you to implement that culture within your, within your club? And, and what are some of the things that yeah. you guys do to do that? So when, when uh, the club was based in Milton Keynes, Milton Keynes is a, is a city about um, 40 miles away from London uh, before we relocated. We were there for 12 years. That's where we really developed the club and, and a lot of the philosophies. Um, Milton Keynes is very much an American type of town, actually. Very much uh, straight roads, you know, horizontals and stuff like that. No roundabouts? Um, No roundabouts? Uh, Actually, it has lots of roundabouts. (laughs) Uh, That's the only difference. It had lots of roundabouts instead of traffic lights, but everything else was the same. (laughs) But it's a a new city, so it's just over 55 years old. So it has a different feel to Mm -hmm. um, to the rest of England. And actually, and I thought basketball would thrive very well in that city, because, you know, football hadn't taken a stronger hold as it has in other big cities. So anyway, the plan there was the best way I felt to develop these uh, these youngsters was to set up these small clubs I mentioned to you before in the recreational centers. Mm-hmm. Right. So we would go to a local center related to a school, establish a club there twice a week uh, at this time of the evening. Do the same, do the same. So very quickly, we had 16 of these locations. Mm-hmm. Right. Big thing was around identity. Yep. So I would make sure that um, when you joined with, you know, when little Billy joined at the age of uh, eight, he got his own reversible uniform, 
uh, with his own number on it and the club logo on it. Mm -hmm. So actually, if he ever came to watch the men practice, he would see them wearing the same practice jerseys as him. Perfect. So all of a sudden, we had these 1,600 kids running around town in their reversible uniforms. Um, once we got a nice little system going, every six weeks, we would bring them to the biggest facility and they would play each other. Mm -hmm. So we, went, we literally went from kids who couldn't walk and chew gum from a basketball perspective to all of a sudden, you know, running pick and rolls and dribble handoffs and all kinds of stuff. So from this big pool is how we established our junior program for the under 12s, 14s, 16s yep. and 18s. Now, it, I mentioned to you before about the players going to schools or going to institutions to share some of that knowledge. Now, this was really important because talking about role models, you know, so we've got these young 12, 14 year old boys and girls, and then they come to the game on a Saturday night to watch the big boys play. Yep. Now, they're influenced by those guys. Now, those guys are up there on a pedestal. So mostly you can't get to them. But of course, come Wednesday night at my local club, you know, here's Fred from Indiana, you know, teaching yep. us how to shoot the ball. Yep. So that connection becomes really huge. Yep. You know, and that's where the stories start getting shared in terms of what possibilities there are as a basketball player, what life actually means. And then from my from my senior player perspectives, I believe that that you know, going to the local hospice dressed as Father Christmas and giving to the old people. That kind of stuff, you don't want entitled players. You know, that's one of the things we have in the world these days, is entitled players. They've not won anything. Mm -hmm. They've not won any championships. They've not done anything, but they walk around as if they're owed something from the game. And I think this is a way of humbling players to understand that, actually, I was little Johnny once. Yep. And one day, I'm going to be old Fred at age 90 in the hospice <laughs> at some point. Uh, right? Exactly. So, you know, so I think... Those kind of interactions are huge, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's where you inspire these young boys and girls who want to be like him. I want to go to college in America. I want to play professional basketball. I want to shoot the ball like him. I want to play defense like her. Those kind of things. Um, and we were fortunate, you know, because we started at such a ground-level base, we brought a number of kids through to play for England, um, to go on to play professionally. One of our young players that I developed at that time, Joe. Uh, Jordan Spencer went on to a Division II school at Augustana and won the NCAA championship. Oh, in South Dakota? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, in South Dakota. You yep. know, he, he, they won that, you know. Um, I, I've had so many of the young guys go on to play professionally in Europe, uh, and some of them are currently playing professionally on our team now. Mm -hmm. um, but also, a lot of them have gone on to do other things in life, mm -hmm. you know. One of them is a great music musician who's, who's got a huge accolade. Another guy is running his own fitness equipment business. Others are just being really solid fathers and mothers mm -hmm. at home. You know, so and I so strongly believe in that in that kind of environment for for teaching people because you don't always know what people need. So if you have a situation where there's plenty of, of opportunity for you to relate to different types of people, then hopefully it, it, you know rings a bell someone in the back of the head there and then and you straighten yourself out with what you're trying to do. So that's how I've gone on to develop those. But of course, in terms of the execution of that stuff on the floor, we actually had a club there where actually all these kids played the same system, give or take, yeah. similarly. So it became easy for a kid to play up and down in the system, you know, and actually develop so much faster. It's something that happens all the time with the Spanish basketball clubs. Not a lot of clubs do that over here for us, but that's something I have insisted on. Um, and I believe in that so strongly because all of a sudden, 
like I said earlier, I'm 16. I can jump to the pro team and play five minutes without missing a beat because they're doing exactly the same team. When I come and watch the games, I can actually see, oh, I see. He starts that move a little earlier than I do or a little higher up than I do and, or a little lower. And I can improve myself when I go back to play at my under 18 level or my under 12 level. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we've been able to do that. And also, it was always important to try and get these guys a session a week that was strictly fundamentals, you know? So they were playing, yeah, regular junior practice, and, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But actually, there's a session where we all come together, and all we're doing is strictly fundamentals, um, you know, because coaches don't always have the time to do that in regular practice. Yep, yep. Coach Bacali, great place to end it. That that was absolutely awesome. Uh I I, uh, I can't thank you enough for. Uh, I had to get up early this morning. It's the middle of the afternoon over there, so so you've been bright eyed and bushy tailed for a while. I had we had our uh, big coaches clinic yesterday. I was I was doing stuff with a pen and a napkin for about twelve hours yesterday, and then I'm wow. r- rolling out of bed here this morning to uh, to get you on here. But uh, this has been absolutely terrific. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast here today, and, and I hope you've had a good time with it. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. I hope I've you know woken you up and shaken you up a little bit this morning for that. Um, no, I love sharing the ideas. I think that's a big thing for us that we. My next step here in this country to try and set up a, a, an active coaching association and share share knowledge. That's something I really benefited from in New Orleans with the association there just recently. Uh, and sharing ideas is, is really what I'm all about right now. And I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Well, it's it's been, like I said, I've wanted to have somebody from overseas on for a while just to get a different perspective. And and I really appreciate your time for me this morning, for you this afternoon. Uh, predictions for the match here in a little bit? Yeah, predictions for the match, just so you know. Manchester City 1, Liverpool 3. Uh, ah, well, hey, you'll never walk alone. Never. <laughs> Never walk. Yeah. So, uh, Coach, could you hold the line here for just a second as I wrap up a couple things? No problem. All right. Uh, again, uh, Vincent McCauley, uh, the, the former owner and coach of the London Lions. Uh, just a terrific conversation here today. It was really just awesome to get a different perspective on 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 the, the beautiful game. Uh, but uh, we want to thank our founding sponsor, COSAC Chiropractic. If you're needed any of any chiropractic services, don't hesitate to give Dr. Kevin or Dr. Heidi a call at 402-964-0300. Follow us on Twitter at a pen and a napkin. Uh, download, rate, and review the podcast here. Uh, give us five stars. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. Uh, check out the new website, a pen and a napkin.com, newly redesigned here since my season got over. Uh, literally have put on a ton of different new things, videos, handouts, all sorts of different stuff. And of course, I'd really appreciate a visit to the A Pen and a Napkin Patreon page. I uh, want to do a lot of different things. Got a, got a lead. I've got this uh, pretty big idea, and I got a good lead on it yesterday at our coaches clinic. And I hopefully over the next few months, this, this project really develops. So uh, for Coach McCauley, uh, here in in cheery in in cheery London here this morning, uh, for me this morning, him this afternoon. I really appreciate his time and his conversation. Coaches, as always, let's be sure to hone our craft one day at a time.